I think one of the hardest emotions to navigate is disappointment. Uh, and, and often our disappointment comes because of the gap between what we expected and what we experience. Uh, so many times we go into something expecting one thing and experiencing something very, very different. For me, this often happens when a friend recommends a restaurant to me. And they're just all hyped on this restaurant. And I go, and I'm like, you have terrible taste. This wasn't good. You know? Or, or I go to a movie, and like, this movie is going to change your life. And I'm just like, eh. You know? Like, you know, you just, it's a disappointment. But, but I have no one to blame when I go into an experience, and I'm disappointed, and, and I was the one who set the expectation. And uh, my wife and I, we go see movies, and, and we have some strict rules. If it's serious, if it's dramatic, and there might be crying, I watch it by myself, because I love those kind of movies. Um, not on planes, I hate crying in public, but, but by myself. But with my wife, it's, is it funny? Does stuff blow up? And is it not real? If it meets all three of those, we go see it. And so about four years ago, we went to the movies... Because uh, we saw this preview for this movie that looked really funny. And halfway through, she punched me in the arm. She goes, this is a drama. What did you do? You know? And I'm like, I'm sorry. I thought it was going to be a comedy. The, the, the preview was a total bait and switch. And the movie is called The Intern with Robert De Niro and Anne Hathaway. And, and the movie uh, begins kind of following Robert De Niro's life. He's, he's 70 years old. He's retired from his job. His, his wife has died. He's burned through all of his frequent flyer miles. His kids are tired of having him come to visit. And so he decides to become an intern at a startup internet fashion company, which is kind of a hilarious moment to have a 70-year-old intern. Um, that's where the comedy on the previews came from. And he works for Anne Hathaway, who started this company, and she created it from the ground up, but now she's completely overwhelmed. She is completely taxed. Um, She got it here, but she's not sure if she can get it there, and her board is ready to replace her, and so they kind of build this bond throughout the movie. Um, And I can remember sitting in the movie theater and feeling like I was watching my life on the screen. It's one thing if somebody gives you feedback and says, Scott, you really need to work on this or you need to to get some help with it. That's part of our last series, getting feedback from people in our lives. But it's another thing to watch it on screen. And and I definitely didn't relate to Robert De Niro. I'm not in that stage of life yet, although it'll come eventually. Um, I was relating more to Anne Hathaway because I saw myself in her. I was in a season where I I couldn't say no at work. And so I, I was having a hard time actually leaving work at work. As Chris Innes said a few weeks ago, I was present at home, but I wasn't really present. And I saw in what happens in her life, and I won't spoil the movie, but some things happen negatively in her life. I was like, ah, I don't want to end up where she got to. And so we went and had coffee afterwards and asked my wife, I said, do you see some of her in me? Do you see that? Am I like that? Um, And it just, I did not expect to go into that movie and have it speak my story on screen, but it did. And this movie, with people in different life stages, articulates powerfully the challenge we face today. Because in our culture, relevancy equals value. In our culture, you are valuable if you do something that's important, if you say something that's important, make something that's important. But if you're not making stuff, if you're not creating stuff, if if, if what you are doing doesn't come out as important in the eyes of others, you're kind of just cast aside. 
That's why Robert De Niro was wrestling so much because he felt like he had no value because he wasn't sure what he did that was relevant ever. And Anne Hathaway is literally killing herself to prove that she has relevancy and it's still not enough. And that's why I think that movie spoke to so many people. Exceeded expectations. Because all of us have wrestled with the question, do I matter? Am I important? Does does what I'm doing move the needle for anybody? Wake up in the morning and go, okay, I need to go do something today. I need to show up today. I need to make something today. I need to create something today so that I am sure that I have value. Or you feel like the world has passed you by. And you feel like you don't have worth and value anymore because you don't feel relevant. That's, that's a little bit of a taste of where I hope the next three weeks take us. Because we're starting a series today called Like Jesus. Because there's a lot of people today who admire Jesus. They look up to him. They think he's a great teacher. He has some, some quotes that they've taken and they've used in their life. And so they admire Jesus. They like him. That's kind of the Jesus my homeboy crowd. I, he's somebody I admire from a distance. There's others of us, though, that I think have turned Jesus into what, what I would call a cadaver in a cadaver lab. We study him. We pick him apart. We are experts on him. But newsflash, Jesus did not come to be admired, and he did not come to be picked apart. He came to be known, and he came to make us like him. So the subtitle of the series is, Do We Like Jesus, or Do We Want to Be Like Jesus? Because it's really easy to admire him from a distance, and it's really easy to study him. But when he begins to call you and lead you to become like him, that is very different. And we're going to look at a season in Jesus' life near the very beginning of his public ministry where he is led into the desert and he's tempted. And the temptations that Jesus faces, many of them are similar to ours because he's human just like us. There are some other ones that he faces that are unique to him as God. And if you relate to those, you need a very different sermon series. Schedule some time to meet with me this week. Um, But I think what you're going to find over the next three weeks is that Jesus' struggles bear a remarkable similarity to yours. And that's what Hebrews 4 tells us. That we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. No, we have one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And that's the hope that we have. That the temptations that face us are not new. That Jesus faced them, that Jesus knows them, and because of that, he can show us how to overcome them as he makes us more like him. So if you have a copy of the handout today, I'd encourage you to pull it out and take some notes. Because here's where we're going to begin with the very first temptation. Here's the big idea. Our value is found in who God says we are, not how relevant or useful we feel. Today we're going to talk about the fact that the scriptures teach us, this moment in Jesus' life shows us, that our value is found in who God says we are, not how relevant or useful we feel. That's why I've titled this message, The Temptation to Be Relevant. That for many of us, we, like Jesus, are going to be tempted to make our worth and value equivalent to how relevant or useful we feel, or the other side, 
how relevant or useful we don't feel in any given moment. And I said we're going to be in the same text for the next three weeks, and that text is Matthew chapter 4. So if you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to open up to Matthew chapter 4. It's the 40th book in the Bible. It's the beginning of the New Testament. It precedes the other accounts of Jesus' life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Uh, This story of the temptation of Jesus is also recorded in Luke's gospel, but we're going to use Matthew's gospel for this series. Last week, I covered seven chapters. That would have been a long time for you all to stand up. I only have four verses today, so I'm going to invite you to stand if you're able to honor the reading of God's word, and Kelly in the back is going to keep us moving on the screen if you didn't bring your Bible with you. Beginning in verse 1, this is what Matthew 4 tells us. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. God, may your word speak to us and may it nourish us and sustain us as we seek to become more like your son, Jesus. In his name we pray today. Amen. You can be seated. This morning, what I want to do is in the time we have, I want to dig into these four verses because I think they share with us five insights from the way that Satan tempted Jesus with relevance and the way that Jesus responded to those temptations. And here's the first insight. That we are more vulnerable to temptation when we are isolated, hungry, and on top of the world. We are more vulnerable to temptation when we're isolated, when we're hungry, and when we feel like we're on top of the world. The passage tells us that Jesus was led into the desert for 40 days and 40 nights where he was tempted. It tells us in in Mark's gospel that when he was in the desert, he was there with the wild animals. That was it. He was isolated. He was alone. He hadn't brought his disciples with him because he hadn't picked them yet. John the Baptist baptized him, but he didn't go with him in the desert. He was there by himself. And I don't know about you, but I think some crazy thoughts when I'm isolated. I buy into some gnarly lies when I'm isolated. I find myself proud and depressed when I'm isolated. And we see this in nature and we see this in humanity that when you get isolated, you are vulnerable to an attack. Go home, turn to Animal Planet today. Just watch for 30 minutes. Any alpha male predator will seek to isolate the prey. Pull the prey away from the pack and then go after the prey. And this is why it is so dangerous for you to use this device without thinking about it. Because the makers of all of the social media apps, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, Snapchat, whatever you use, they seek to get you to use their app more and more and more. And yet psychologists and researchers are now catching up that the more and more you scroll, the less connected you feel and the more isolated you feel. It's actually a direct relationship between the number of hours you spend on social media and the level of isolation you feel. And when you're isolated, you're more vulnerable. The second thing that happens here is that Jesus is hungry. 
I mean, it's just basic human math. If you don't eat, you get hungry. And there are some of you, you don't get hungry, you get hangry. My wife, if, if we go too long without eating, she moves from hungry to angry real fast. And I want you to think about it. Whatever you've eaten today, that's all you're going to eat until after Thanksgiving. How hungry would you be? Really hungry. That's Jesus. 40 days, 40 nights, no food. Well, when I get hungry, I make really bad decisions. Not only in the food that I eat, but the decisions that I make. And for some of us, the problem is not a physical hunger. It's an emotional hunger. It's a mental hunger. It's a spiritual hunger. And so Satan gets Jesus isolated. He gets him hungry. And then he brings the temptation. And the third one is, we get the isolation one because we've had those crazy thoughts at night in our bed by ourselves. Some of us had those crazy thoughts and bad decisions when we were hungry. The third one is kind of surprising. On top of the world. In this moment, when he is led into the desert, Jesus is on top of the world. In my opinion, he's just finished the third best experience of his life. The first one is rising from the dead. Hard to top that. Second one is his transfiguration, revealing all his heavenly glory. The third one is he's in the water. He's baptized. The heavens are torn open. A dove, symbolizing the Holy Spirit, descends on Jesus, and his father out loud says, This is my beloved son. In him I am well pleased. It doesn't get much better than that. Some of you go, I could conquer Satan if I heard that voice aloud. But he hears that, and Mark 1 says this, that after that happened, the Spirit immediately drove him into the wilderness. And it was in the wilderness that he was tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Many of us don't think that we're vulnerable when we are on top of the world, but we are actually more vulnerable in success than we are in failure. We're actually more vulnerable when we're on top of the world than when we feel like we're about to lose it all. Why? When you think back to your life, to the hardest and most difficult season, that was the season when you prayed. That was the season when you turned to God. That was the season where you called everybody to come and support you and help you. Why? Because you knew that if God didn't show up, you were toast. But when you were top of the world, God? Who? Who's this? I got this. If you know your Bible, you know the story of 1 Kings 18. Elijah on Mount Carmel battling with 450 prophets of Baal. God literally rains down fire from heaven, consuming the sacrifice. Yes, victory. If you know your Bible, you know that 24 hours later, Elijah's in the desert asking God to kill him. When you're on top of the world, you're vulnerable. This is why I tell people who get baptized, be prepared the week before your baptism or the weeks after you are going to have spiritual attack on you because you've put a target on your back by going public with your faith. Literally within months, I've seen somebody get baptized and go from the baptistry to prison. Not because they were weak, but because they were vulnerable. Because they went from being on top, not preparing being attacked, and being overwhelmed. We are most vulnerable when we're isolated, hungry, and on top. Number two, second insight. The values of a culture 
will reveal their unique temptations. The values of a particular culture will reveal their unique temptations. In this culture, there is a need for something that drives the temptation that comes to Jesus. And that's a need for bread. You'll notice in the Lord's Prayer, near the beginning, there's a prayer that says, Give us this day our daily Awesome, you're paying attention. That culture relied on food on a daily basis that we know nothing about. They didn't have a closet large enough to be someone's bedroom in their home that was stocked with food the way many of us have. You needed bread every morning. Today, if you leave the service, you can go to Walmart and try 50 different kinds of bread. And they're waiting for you every day. You can stash them in your, in your pantry the last few weeks. And so when Jesus is tempted, he's tempted to turn the stones into bread. Do you know what kind of power that is? Do you know what, what kind of people will follow you if you will feed them? In that culture, they didn't call somebody who could turn stones into bread a magician. They called him a king. Because if you could feed people, they would follow you and give their life for you. And so when he's tempting Jesus, he's tempting Jesus using a need in that day, a value in that day, in a way that's hard for us to comprehend. Our culture is unique. Our value is productivity. Get stuff done. You're a valuable person if you get a lot of things off your to-do list. Even if you write things on your to-do list, you've already done, check them off. And in our culture, the faster and faster things go, the value goes up. Are you productive? Are you efficient? Did you get stuff done? And it's never been easier to be attached to our work. And yet, it's never been easier to turn off our work. We have more available at our fingertips than ever before. And we have higher rates of anxiety, depression, suicide than ever before. They're not unrelated. I told somebody this morning, I've been wanting to preach the sermon series for at least a decade. Because in 2002, when I was in college, I read a book in my freshman seminar. And then I read it again in a class my sophomore year. I picked it up again in that third year, and it became a habit. I've been reading the same book for 17 years. And in that book is a quote that I think speaks so powerfully to our culture's unique temptation. And it's this quote. That beneath all the great accomplishments of our time, there is a deep current of despair. While efficiency and control are the great aspirations of our society, the loneliness, isolation, lack of friendship, and intimacy, broken relationships, boredom, feelings of emptiness and depression, and deep sense of uselessness fill the hearts of millions of people in our success-oriented world. And Ronald Reagan was president when he wrote these words. 1989. 30 years ago. They read it as if somebody tweeted it this morning. See, we live in a world that, that has tempted us with, if you're productive, if you're efficient, if you make, if you create, if you show the world you have value, you will feel enough. And guess how long that lasts? The next morning the next quarter, the next performance. 
When you make your productivity your value, you have to keep showing up and producing more. Because what you did yesterday becomes expected. Today it has to be more and better. And that's why we see here that Jesus is being tempted using something unique from his culture. Make your value, show your value. It's not bread for us, but it's the same temptation. Number three, our enemy tempts us with both disguised sin and twisted goodness. Satan is going to come and tempt us, and he's not just going to tempt us with disguised sin. He's going to try to make sin look good to us. He's going to twist something good and try to use that to get us. We see the first one in in Genesis chapter 3. The serpent says to the woman, Eve, you will not surely die if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So he takes something bad, sin, and he tries to disguise it and trick them. But then if you look at the story of Jesus in Matthew 4, what he does, he says, if you're the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Not a bad thing. Jesus is going to feed 5,000 people with loaves and fishes. It's not a bad thing for him to do. But right here in this moment, it is a good thing with a bad motivation. He says, if, if you're the son of God, he's kind of showing him, hey, prove it. Command these stones to become loaves of bread. Show the world the power you have. Show the world you have what it takes. Prove your worth and value. And friends, if you do the right thing for the wrong reason, it's wrong. If you do the right thing for the wrong motivation, it's wrong. T.S. Eliot famously said, the last and greatest treason is to do the right thing for the wrong reason. And Satan doesn't just come at us with these glaringly evil, sinful temptations. Sometimes he takes something good and he twists it. And that's why most of us fall to those, because we don't expect that. We think, okay, I know all the bad things, you know, don't do this, this, I've got those covered, I'm not going to fall for that. And then we fall for him taking something good and inflecting some of our flesh in it and twisting it. Let me just say this about relevance because I think it needs to be said. Relevance isn't a bad thing and irrelevance isn't a good thing. So I don't come out on Sunday morning hoping that you will consider this message irrelevant. Man, I want to preach a really irrelevant sermon today. That's kind of my goal today. I'm really hoping for that. Like, it's not a good thing. And irrelevance is not a high value. So the solution to the struggle of being tempted by relevance is not to try to live an irrelevant life. Here's the solution. Finding our worth and value in relevance is sinful and dangerous. It's not that you stop trying to be relevant. You just stop trying to make your identity relevance. It's relevance is something you do it is not something you are. And if it's something you are, that's where it becomes sinful and dangerous. I want to preach a message that's relevant. But if I make my worth and value relevance, I will tell you whatever you feel like is relevant. And I will tell you what you want to hear. And there are times I need to tell you things you don't want to hear. And that's fine. You cannot like it. You can go to another church. It's happened before. It'll happen again. But there's a big difference between doing relevant things and being relevant. And when you end up in the being relevant, that's where the danger comes.
Number four, it's really nothing new to be tempted to define yourself by what you do. It's really nothing new to be tempted to define yourself by what you do. We live in a culture that is so enamored by the new and the novel that we think everything about our world today is new and novel. And some of us are getting owned by temptation that is neither new and neither novel. It's old. It's very old. And he says to Jesus here in Matthew 3, if you are the son of God, if that's your identity then command these stones to become loaves of bread. Prove it. Prove your relevance. Prove that's who you are. You go into a room, cocktail party, barbecue, whatever. Introduce yourself. Hi, my name is Scott. What is the first question every single time? What do you do? We all define each other by what you do. And if you don't have a good answer for that question, the conversation shuts down. Or if you have what I do for a living, the conversation shuts down. (laughs) Or if you're on a plane, the headphones come on, you know? But what does Jesus say in response to this? He says, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. He says, my identity is not in what I do. It's not in the way that I even do miracles and turn stones into bread. My identity comes from the mouth of God. It's our big idea. That our value is found in who God says we are, not how relevant or useful we feel. And this is so important because on a daily basis, you are bombarded with the message that you must do, you must make, you must produce something new. You go, Scott, I don't have a job. This really isn't relevant for me. Yes, it is. You're a stay-at-home mom. You have to produce a moment with your kids that is amazing to post on social media so other people think you're doing a good job. If you're no longer working, you need to go on a trip and post pictures of it so that other people be jealous of the life that they're not living, but you are because you're retired now and you save your money. And our culture says you are what you do and you make and you produce and you always have to be doing and making and producing more. It isn't enough to have done that in the past. You have to do it again and again and again and again and again and it's exhausting. If that's false, the truth is that you are who God says you are. And the challenge for many of us is we think that's cheesy. We don't think it's true. We even have a hard time singing it here. We just sang a song, you know, about he is all I say I am. And some of us have just a bunch of a hard time as we do singing in church these words, as we do living them out outside of church. And I say we, I mean me. I have a hard time defining myself that I am who God says I am, and that's enough. I'm tempted to move from just trying to do something relevant to be something relevant. And that's why Craig Rochelle's words have meant so much to me. He says, it's not about being irrelevant, but not equating your relevance with your value. It's turning to God for your worth rather than people because you can either work for the approval of God or you can work from the approval of God. You can either work for the approval of people or you can work from the approval of God. 
And it, it is the exact same thing and it feels totally different. I can tell you when I'm doing one or the other. In what I do, if the praise I get sends me soaring or the criticism I get sends me crashing, I know that I'm working for the approval of people. If praise sends you soaring and criticism sends you crashing, you know that you didn't do it from the approval of God. Because you need you need the approval. But when you already have it and the praise comes, you can enjoy it without needing it. And when the criticism comes, you can mine it for the truth as opposed to having it crush you. Most of us don't know how to handle praise or criticism because we're working for the approval of people and not from the approval of God. Both praise and criticism destroy us. And number five, God's word sustains us. Thank you, Jesus, by reminding us who God says we are. God's word sustains us. What Jesus does in each of these temptations is he quotes scripture. He points us back to a previous reality. And there was another reality that is the reason why the prayer says, give us this day our daily bread. And that reality is in the book of Deuteronomy, fifth book in the Bible. Moses, speaking the words of God here, says, you shall remember the whole way to the promised land that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you, and he let you hunger, and he fed you with manna. Manna was this bread that would fall from heaven every morning. It literally meant, what is it? It was a very memorable meal. They didn't know what it was. Which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone. Again, these are the words Jesus quoted. But by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. See, God knew that if he gave them bread in a stash, they would trust the stash and not the giver. This is why for us, you have the privilege and the curse of living in the most wealthy country in the most wealthy time in history. I know it is very in vogue to cast aspersions on the 1% in our culture, but newsflash, if we take history, we are all the 1%. If we take the church today, we are all the 1%. And our temptation is to trust in the provision, not the provider, the gift, and not the giver. And many of us are sustained by many other things other than the word of God. And I know this because of how we treat the word of God. Let me give an analogy. I got a new iPhone last week, and I had to upgrade my software to do that. And so when I get my new software, I do the same thing that all of you do. What do you all do? You scroll to the bottom and hit agree when it comes to those terms and conditions. None of us read them. My wife reads them because she's a lawyer. That's what she does for fun. She reads contracts. Uh, but none of the rest of us read them. We scroll, 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 and he agree. We don't know what we, we read, but we agree with it. Many of us treat this book the same way. Well, of course I believe it all. Well, if you don't know it, how do you know you believe it? 
And, and, and when I say we, again, I mean me. Because there was a time, a few years ago, where I began to read passages in the scripture that talked about God's love for me. Then I could summarize with this sentence. That you are loved by God without condition or limit. And I had to come to terms with the fact that I didn't actually believe that. Because if you cut into my life, you would see that I didn't believe that. I believe that you are loved by God for what you do and what you produce and the results of it. And God's word wasn't sustaining me. My performance was. My popularity was. People's approval was. And so I had to go back into the scriptures and wrestle with texts like Ephesians 2.4. Ephesians 2.3 talks about how broken I am. And then Ephesians 2.4 says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. And it describes what he did. And I had to go, do I believe that God did all that because he loved me and had mercy in me? Or did I do it? Did you do it because I earned it? In Romans 5.8, it says, but God showed his love for us. And then while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Okay, so, so if I was still a sinner... I didn't earn anything. I mean, and even the biggest verse in the Bible, the Tim Tebow verse, John three sixteen, for God so loved the world. And I, I didn't get further than that. Because if I wrote it in my Bible, the Scott International Version, it would have said, for God was so obligated to Scott. For God, because he was God and had to do it, came and gave his son. True confession. I didn't believe that God actually loved me for me. I believe that God did it for some much more heartless reason. And so until I came to the place where I could embrace God's word and the truth of his word, it couldn't sustain me. And I couldn't shift from my relevance as my identity to his love. See, if you're going to overcome these temptations, you're not strong enough. You're just not. God's word is going to have to sustain you. And if Jesus turned to God's word to face the battle, newsflash, he's a heck of a lot stronger than you are. You're going to need to do the same thing. And to help you do that, I have some next steps for you in the back to help you walk through what that looks like. And the first one is this. Make prayer your first response not your last resort. Make prayer your first response, not, not your last resort. Most of us would say, oh, I pray. I pray when things go bad. Okay? Yeah, but do you pray first? Or do you exhaust all of your own resources and creativity and then get around to prayer? Because that's what I do. On so many occasions, I try to figure it out myself, and then when I can't, I pray. It's like some, how some of you make things when you buy them from the store. You figure out how, on your own, you break it, somebody looks at you and says, are you going to read the instructions? And I love what Kevin Queen says. He says, prayer isn't the only thing we do, but it is the first thing we do. And just that switch of going from I'm going to get around to prayer versus I'm going to start with prayer can turn the dependency off of yourself and onto him. I'm not saying just pray, sit back, and let God figure it out. There's a word for that. It's stupid. I'm just going to pray, and God's going to provide a job. I'm not going to apply for it. I'm not going to build a resume. I'm not going to go out and do anything. No, no, no. 
But pray first. Depend on him before you depend on yourself. Number two, meditate on scripture to prepare for future temptation. Here's what I'm going to tell you. I'm not a prophet very often, but I'm going to be it right now. You're going to face temptation this week. And it's going to look a lot like the temptation you faced last week. Because Satan is not that creative. And you still have the same weaknesses. So he's going to come for them. So if you know the temptation is going to come in advance, why don't you prepare for yourself? And pick out those scriptures that speak to those. And begin meditating on them. Meditation is now a billion dollar industry in our country. If not more. Because of how anxious and mentally unhealthy we are. And biblical meditation is different than our world idea of meditation. Our world idea of meditation is empty your mind. Christian meditation is fill your mind. And here's the thing. All of you are professional meditators. Did you know that? You are a professional meditator. How do I know that? Because of what happened when you went to bed last night. You meditated on all the things you did wrong in the day. Worry is basically glorified meditation on the wrong stuff. And so what what meditating on scripture does is it prepares you in advance for the temptation that's going to come. Matthew, sorry, Psalm 119. David says, I have stored up your word, God, in my heart. Why? That I might not sin against you. Because I know the temptation that's going to come. And I'm going to prepare for it in advance. That's why I've memorized verses like John 3.16 and Romans 5.8 and Ephesians 2.8 and 9 and Romans 8.1 and Romans 8.37. Why? Because they all speak to the fact that God loves me apart from my performance. Why? Because every Sunday I walk out on a stage. That every day other than Sunday is used for a performance. So that I will remind myself when the temptation comes... I am loved for who I am. Number three, craft identity statements. I, I think that we need to go beyond just memorizing scripture. Not, not, not saying that's bad, but we need to go beyond that to begin putting in our own words some statements about who we are. And so if you've never done this before, here's a way to start. Open up your Bible to three places. Romans 8, Ephesians 1 and 2, and Colossians 1. Four chapters. Not a lot to read, but read those. Then get a piece of paper, and at the top, write the words, I am. And then go back to those passages and begin writing down who God says you are. Unless you have tiny, perfect handwriting, be over a page. And those statements are the beginning of your identity statements. For me, I have some statements I just looked over before I came on stage today. Jesus loves me for who I am, not what I do. I have nothing to prove and no one to impress. I am good when people don't like me or what I do. And I am God's masterpiece and he has plans for me to fulfill today. Those are four of the 18 I have down. And because I've written those, I now have them to draw on when I'm stepping into a tempting, rich environment. To own who God says I am before the temptation comes. And then number four, finally, do your work as an act of worship to God and a gift to others. You're not going to be here tomorrow. You're going to be somewhere else. And you're probably going to be doing work of some kind. 
Here's the problem. Most of us think that work is sinful and that it's a product of the fall, and it's not. If you've read your Bible, you know that work came in Genesis 1 and 2 because Adam was given the job to tend to the garden and name the animals. And that's work. Some of you couldn't name your kid and you had nine months to do it. Imagine naming every animal. That was work. And heaven is not going to be a giant glorified cracker barrel where you sit on the front porch and sit in a rocking chair. You're going to have a job. Work isn't evil. Yeah, there's some dynamics of it that are part of the fall, but it's not evil. So when we do our work, we have two options. Our work can either be worship to God or it can be idolatry. And an idol is anything you look to for what only God can give. And the problem with many of you when it comes to your work, whether it's a, a, a job you go to, or a person you're taking care of is you're looking to that work or that person for something that only God can give you. Some of you have made your kids your idol. And that's a heck of a way to put on a person. Everything about your life revolves around your kids and their schedule and them getting what you didn't get. And the greatest tragedy is in our child-worshipping, child-centered families. Parents raise these amazing kids, turn to their partner and say, who are you? And then get divorced. You got to the finish line and then you fell and failed. One day you won't do your job. One day I won't do this job. Who am I on that day? And when you know who you are, You can make your work an act of worship to God because you don't need something from it. It's the difference between giving a gift to someone and needing something from someone. I know in a healthy place where I don't need to hear something from you in the lobby. It's great too. I enjoy it. But I don't need it. Because in this world you can smell needy a mile away. And when you know who you are, you can make what you do a gift. Not something you need from someone. Because you've learned that your worth and value is found in who God says you are. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to the audio from Cornerstone Church in Prescott, Arizona. For more information, visit us online at www.prescottcornerstone.com.